Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with sound designer, film editor, and director Walter Murch. Mr. Murch is a three-time Academy Award winner. He has edited Julia, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, The English Patient, and Cold Mountain. He has also directed the feature film Return to Oz, which will be shown Saturday, January 9, 2016 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. More later, now on to the interview. We're showing Return to Oz, which you co-wrote and directed, and the movie is based on two of L. Frank Baum's Oz books. And I know you loved the Oz books before you even made the movie, and when did you first read the Oz books? I, I was read, the, the Oz books were read to me by my mother when I was four years old, I guess. And uh, I just became fascinated with them. And then when I learned how to read myself, uh, and sometime, I, I guess I was around seven years old, I decided that I was going to read a grown-up book, which in this case just means a book uh, that has more words than pictures in it. And so I, I took The Land of Oz, uh, which is one of the books that Return to Oz is based on, and I just sat down and plowed through it and loved that whole world, the world of Oz, ever since. And because I was exposed to it so early, it really had a profound effect, I think, upon my imaginative life. Just uh, the things that L. Frank Baum asks you to think about in terms of people and situations and what's possible and what would be imaginatively fantastic are are deep, deep, deep inside uh, my my brain as a result of having these things uh, in my life so so early. This is a quote from the book, The Conversations, Walter Murch, and I'm quoting you. Right. Uh, it says something about the function of dreaming of a dreaming mind that it's not there to render you happy, but to unsettle, re-examining, and foreshadowing events in a strange, talismatic way. Right. Um, is this what you were trying to accomplish with Dorothy's journey in Return to Oz? Well, t- to a certain extent. I mean, films are very much like dreams, and I think, uh, although it's yet to be proven, I think that the grammar of films, as we've developed it, really uh, uh, comes from our long million-year, whatever, familiarity with how dreams are happen in our sleep. One of the peculiar things that I still don't know the answer to is that dreams, as I said in that quote, dreams for the most part are either kind of ambiguous or unsettling or sometimes frightening uh, nightmares, but they rarely, if ever, are what we would call full of belly laughs. You you know, to wake up from a dream just completely full of laughter is not, that doesn't happen very often. And yet films are, half of the films that get made are comedies that try to make you have a laughing experience. So I think that's what I was trying to get at in the quote. Uh, Films have a, in a certain sense, films have a broader palette than dreams, precisely because of this uh, ability to go all the way from very scary to extremely funny. Um, Whereas dreams, uh, in general, don't go into the funny 
edge of the spectrum uh, unless they go there in the kind of funny, strange way. That was a strange dream I had last night. So I think that's what I would say at, at this point about that quote. Could you discuss the casting of nine-year-old Feroza Balk as Dorothy, and how did you come to cast her? Yes, no, I, I was responsible for casting her. The, we set out uh, many months, uh, in fact, a, over a year before filming, looking for a Dorothy. And we had, I think we looked at perhaps 1,200 different girls in open casting calls in, I think, seven or eight cities in the United States and then two cities in Canada. And it was a filtering process. I think out of that first bunch, we selected 200 to think more about. And then that boiled down to 60. And then that boiled down to 12. And then down to two. And Feruza survived each of those filterings. And uh, she and another girl we brought to London to do the final film tests, and it was my opinion and also the opinion of the studio that she was, uh, she was the one. Return to Oz was mainly told from Dorothy's point of view, and as yes. I said, Miss Balk was nine years old, and the entire weight of the picture was on her shoulder. How did she and you handle this challenge? Well, that was one of the reasons that I cast her, is that just watching her behavior, not only in the screen tests, but kind of behind the scenes, she showed fantastic resilience and imaginative life under what some other kids or even grown-ups would find very stressful. She didn't seem to experience the stress at all. She loved the mechanics and all of the paraphernalia that go along with filming. And, you know, she didn't walk into this situation blind. She knew, obviously, that uh, Judy Garland had played Dorothy before her and Judy Garland, and that role is, is iconic in the American uh, and, in fact, world uh, cinema. So she, she knew, even as a nine-year-old, that she was following in the footsteps of something very big. But she was also able to really invest herself in the moment uh, of each scene and to believe that the creatures that she was interacting with, w which for the most part were puppets, and if they weren't puppets, they were animals, and if they weren't animals, they were claymation, clay animation that wasn't there at the time of filming. But she was able, with the imaginative power of a child, but a very particular child in her case, she was able to see them as real people and if you look at the film and look at every shot in the film in fact she is the only human being in the film for 75 percent of the time and yet you believe along with her that these other creatures are as real as she is and so, so i got a sense of that uh, very much during the casting and that gave me the idea which proved to be correct that she could survive this very long shooting schedule. It was, it was over 100 days. And also just the hard work involved in being the only human actor in so much of it. David Shire wrote a great score for Return to Oz. He also wrote yes, the music. Yes, he did. Yeah. He also wrote the music for The Conversation, and you stated on the audio commentary of The Conversation that Francis Coppola asked him to write 
theme music before the movie was right. made to help right. the actors with the mood. Did did you mm-hmm. do the same thing for Return to Oz? I I, I didn't. Uh, that uh, it it was always going to be a big score for the film. He was also very busy working on other films at the time, so he wasn't available to work on this film before we shot the film. So that made that impossible. Unfortunately, it would have been great to have done it. But we did not ever use what's called a temp score, a temporary score, which almost every film does now and and even then, is you, you take records or CDs or something off the radio that you like in terms of music and put it up with the film and so you're you're using music that was written for something else as an idea of what the music should be for this film and that's always a very awkward moment where you have to remove that music and put in the music that the composer had has written and so we never did that the the, the film was edited and put together without any music until David's music started to be applied to it I want to talk about the production design. In Return to Oz, you had the Deadly Desert, the Lunch Pail Tree, Emerald City as a wasteland. Could you discuss working relationship with Norman Reynolds and creating the fantasy Uh, aspect? Yeah, Norman was a fantastic ally uh, during the making of the film and in the year of pre-production going forward uh, from uh, from the beginning he and I collaborated on on how this would all look and how it would all come together. He was very strong influence on the design of the characters, both in terms of their look. He was somebody who, working with George Lucas, had evolved the look of uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 in the Star Wars films and, and much of the sets of the Star Wars films. It was fantastic to be able to work so closely with Norman over such a long period of time, uh, I think he was he and I were working together for certainly a year and a half. Did John R. Neal's illustrations from the original Oz book come into play? In the yes, uh, very definitely. I was very much influenced by those drawings when I was a kid. I came to see them as drawings that really reflected what Oz would look like, more so than the previous, uh, the first book, Wizard of Oz, was drawn by William Denslow, and that has a very different look than the, the John Neal drawing. So I, uh, in my heart, I, I felt that the Neal drawings were what I really responded to, and Norman agreed with that. And Neal, in fact, was inspired by the, the style of uh, illustration at the time, but also particularly by the uh, architectural designs that had emerged out of the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, where where Baum himself had lived in Chicago at that time as a young father and had taken his kids to the fair. And I think that had a huge influence for him on how he conceived of Oz. Also a production designer of uh, how difficult was it for the British-born production designer Norman Reynolds to turn the English countryside into turn-of-the-century Kansas? Yes, that was a that was a 
perennial problem that we finally did get a good solution to because we looked all over for it. And the original plan was actually to shoot in Kansas, but then the studio decided that we had to cut our budget and we had to eliminate all foreign locations, not only Kansas and the United States, but we were going to shoot in uh, Italy and Sardinia and other places that Norman had used in doing Raiders of the Lost Ark. But we had to cut those, unfortunately. But we were able to find in uh, Wiltshire, one of the southern counties of England, that same kind of rolling, gentle rolling prairie look that you find for the most part in central and eastern Kansas. The the actual location that we used was interesting because it was part of the British Army testing grounds. They have set aside this uh, large area, I think 60 miles in diameter, and large sections of it uh, simply have no buildings on it at all because in the past they have tested munitions on it. So we found a section that was similar to that, that gave you that sense of a wide open space with no power lines, no buildings, and a very distant uh, horizon. Return to Oz was made at Disney, and in doing research, the Disney studio was lost at the time. They really couldn't connect with audiences. And could you discuss working at Disney during that time? They had had, uh, Disney had had a a kind of a wake-up call in the late 70s with films like Black Stallion, which I had written several drafts of, and also the film Star Wars. And they felt, these are the kinds of films that we should be making. Why aren't we making them? It turns out that they, they contacted people who had been involved in those films and wondering, could you direct a film for us? And so one of the reasons that I came on board to do Return to Oz, which was an idea that I brought to Disney, was this way of hopefully bringing Disney out of this trough that they had gotten themselves into in the late 1970s and early 80s. Unfortunately, uh, Return to Oz was not a commercial success at the time, but that's the origin of my being engaged and talking to Disney at the time. On the audio commentary of THX 1138, you stated that a director is the immune system of the film. The director lets something into the movie that would be good, or he doesn't let something in that would be poisonous. In Return to the Oz, could you discuss what you let in that was good and what you kept out that would have been bad? Oh, it's it's hard to tell now at such a distance. Uh, you know, the, the director has probably... 20,000 questions uh, aimed at the director almost every day. What lens should we use? What color shirt should this character have? How should you read this line? And so you're, you're batting back these, the answers to these questions uh, at a fantastic rate all day long, five or six days a week for 100 days. And um, you just you have to begin to rely on your gut feeling about certain things uh, from the, you know, as an important thing as casting, you know, why did I cast Dorothy Gale in the film? Uh, Rosa Balk as Dorothy Gale down to how should TikTok look? 
uh, all of those things. Um, so I, I'm afraid I can't give you uh, specifically uh, examples of negative stuff, and hopefully all of the things that are good about the film are things that are, in fact, in the film. This was your first movie you directed, and you're an editor, and what was it like to go from editing, and sound designer, I should say, what was it right. like to go from editing a movie to directing one? Quite an experience, uh, quite an experience, because you're an editor, uh, even a, a sound designer, is somebody who spends 98% of their time either alone or just with the director and maybe a few other people, assistants and things. Whereas when you're shooting a film, you're dealing with many, many, many dozens of people, sometimes hundreds of people uh, in the crew and the cast. And the schedule uh, for an editor is quite hard. I mean, you have to meet all of your deadlines, but you do have the luxury uh, during the day of getting up and walking outside and thinking about something if you find yourself in a corner, whereas a director uh, just simply doesn't have that kind of freedom. You, you are chained to a really pretty relentless schedule. And so I had to uh, rise to the occasion and adapt myself to, to that. And, you know, I knew intellectually, uh, I knew what I was getting into because many of my friends are directors and they had talked about it. But, you know, it's a different experience looking at something from the outside and actually experiencing it yourself. So that was, um, that, those were the big lessons uh, that I, I took away from the experience. You've made the statement as an editor you would never go on to the film set because you don't want to know how long it took to get right. a certain shot or the difficulties of filming a certain scene. Uh, you just wanted to see what was on the film. Did, your, did you and your editor, um, Leslie Hodgson, uh, have the type of conflict now that you're the director, I want this in the scene, but he says, no, you can't. Right, no, I, I, uh, we, we got along very well. We had worked together on a number of films before, and obviously I had been on the set uh, a number of times uh, all day long, uh, just a very deep uh, immersion in the set. So I was a little bit anxious about how all of that would work out. Going into the editing room, I would, I would be forced to kind of eat my own words, you know, okay, is that really how it's going to be? You know, I was not in uh, with Leslie telling him what to do. I, I allowed him to interpret the film, and then I would screen it, and we would have a discussion about what changes we might make. But I wasn't there peering over his shoulder all the time and saying, no, no, do it this way, do it that way. Um, I, I let him have a lot of freedom, which had been my experience working with other directors, Francis Coppola and... Uh, Anthony Minghella and, and others. I did do some editing on the film, especially some of the scenes that had a lot of visual effects in them, because it was faster to do that than to try to explain how this was going to wind up, because I was still trying to figure that out myself. Uh, so it was in some of those scenes that I found that I could, in fact, overcome my knowledge of how it was shot, and I could really set that aside. So it's, uh, I, I learned a lot uh, going from one environment to, to the other. 
Um, I want to back up and just ask about your days while you were attending film school with George Lucas at the University of Southern California, and what was that experience like? Well, um, you know, back in those days, uh, if, if you'll permit me, you know, George was not George Lucas. He was just another kid at the film school. Uh, although he was extremely talented then, and it was obvious from the very first films that he made that we other students were just like amazed at what he came up with and how he could do it. And he was very uh, free and, and aggressive and imaginative and all of the things that we have later come to know as uh, George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and everything else. We students at the film school formed a bond. It was partly because we were sort of alarmed that the prospects for employment were rather dim. Hollywood at that time in the mid-60s was facing a very bad period. I think fewer films were made in the, in 1965 than have ever been made before or since. The general feeling in the among the faculty was this is uh, this may not work out, you know. And the the first thing that the camera department, the head of the camera department, said was, "My advice to you students is to get out now. Don't get your tuition back because there's simply no jobs for you." So those of us who stayed formed a kind of bond because we were sort of alone in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, not knowing what was going to happen. And so there, there have been lifelong friendships, uh, and one of them is with George, that have come out of that uh, that experience. You're the film editor on Julia, and was directed by Fred Zinnemann, and yes. he was part of the second generation of filmmakers. Did Mr. Zinnemann express his feelings towards your generation or the film school generation? Well, yes, uh, although he did it more by action than than words. The fact that here was a director who had had the experience of uh, directing High Noon and directing From Here to Eternity and The Nun's Story and uh, many, many, many other classic films, the fact that he was making this film in England and that he reached out to a basically a very young film student uh, who, who was barely out of school um, and that he brought me from the United States to work with him in in England was a real testament, I think, to his interest and faith in the kind of things that we film students were doing, making such films as The Godfather and American Graffiti and THX 1138 and uh, other other films, conversation, other films like that. Referring to your book, In the Blink of an Eye, you said 51% of the ideal cut was emotion, and you were the sound designer and co-writer of THX 1138, which takes place in this dystopian future where drugs suppress emotion, right. and the movie is abstract and mysterious. How did you find that 51% of emotion for that movie? Well, that... Also, in that in the book, I say these these numbers are sort of tongue in cheek. I, I threw numbers at it just to emphasize the importance of emotion, but to say this is fifty one percent or forty eight percent or thirty two percent or even 
25% is, uh, you know, it's very hard to put a number with an emotion. Um, so uh, all I was really saying there is that in that list I made of things that were important, emotion at 51% is worth more than everything else combined. That if you, you make a cut from one shot to another, and it breaks every rule in the book. It, it uh, technically is the wrong thing at the wrong time and everything else. And yet, for some mysterious reason, it makes people feel something, and it makes that feeling uh, that that feeling is the right feeling for that point in the film, then that's, the, that's what you should do, even though it breaks all the rules. Uh, I mean, it would be like uh, somebody playing a musical instrument, and then at the right time, doing something that was completely out of tune and uh, was at the wrong rhythm and uh, different key and just a of notes. And yet, at that moment, if that, if that was the right thing to feel, then go ahead and do it. Don't, don't worry about uh, anything else if you can magically get that. Now, THX is a cold film. If, if you would look at films as having a temperature uh, compared to American Graffiti, say, which was George's next film, which is a very warm film, THX was cold. It, it happened, it takes place in an underground civilization sometime in the future where something bad has happened on the surface of the earth. We, we never know what it is. And people are on drugs, and they they are so much on drugs that they don't even think about getting out of this world, even though there is no out to the world. It would be like uh, you know being on a on an airplane, flying somewhere, and thinking, I think I'll open that door and and go for a walk. You know, you just can't do that. And so that was the sort of world that these people, THX and everyone else, inhabited. So. It, it doesn't have emotion in the same uh, kind of warm and, and round sense that the emotion in uh, Black Stallion has or the emotion that uh, is in uh, American Graffiti or other films like that. So, But you, you take the emotion that you can conjure up and, and do with it what, what you can. Final question, very important. In the final scene of the conversation, where right. Harry Kyle could not find the eavesdropping device, right. is it hidden in the saxophone strap? Well, I, you know, I don't know where it is, uh, <laughs> and neither does Francis, and who wrote the who wrote the book. In fact, there are many things in the film of the conversation that Francis made himself ignorant about, which sounds like a strange thing to say, but. What he was trying to do was to put together two different kinds of films. He was trying to make a film sort of like Hitchcock, a suspense film. But he was also trying to do a character study of this very lonely person who found human relations very hard, but who was very expert at certain technical things. And he, he knew intuitively that in trying to put those two things together, like two different kinds of metal uh, to make a new alloy, uh, like you combine copper and zinc to make brass, uh, that he knew that though these two things didn't really go together, uh, and but he was going to force them together. He also knew that if he if he knew too much about the story, that the film would tend to drift toward the story and, and away from his the other thing he was interested in, which was character study. So 
who the Harrison Ford character really is, what his role in the plot is, I don't know, and Francis even doesn't know. Is Cindy Williams Robert Duval's daughter, or is she his wife, a young wife? We don't know. It's just somehow the relationship between Cindy Williams and Fred Forrest is not a good thing, and they are trying to maybe maybe take over the company. We, we just don't know. But, and because that's the position that Harry Call and the Harry Calls of the world are in. That's, that's one of the dilemmas that we have with things like the NSA right now spying on cell phones, is that you get a huge amount of information, but you don't really know how that information all fits together. And so you start constructing realities based on hunches or feelings, and frequently, as happens in the conversation, it turns out his original hunch is completely wrong, that his hunch was that these two young people were victims, and it turns out, nope, they were perpetrators. But it was just based on these fragments of information that he had sucked up in his uh, electronic vacuum. It's a, it's a cautionary tale of a film, really, for the situation that we're in today, which is that anything can be said and taken out of context and used to prove something that is, in fact, probably the opposite of what it really is. Michael, my um, tech guy just wants to ask a quick question. What are you sure. working on now? I, I just finished earlier this year editing Brad Bird's Tomorrowland, the, the uh, science fiction film. And now I'm in London working on a documentary about a CIA-backed coup called Operation Ajax, which in 1953 erased the democratically elected government of Iran and imposed the dictatorship of the Shah. So it's a, but it's a documentary. It's not a fiction film. I would like to thank Walter Murch for doing the interview. Please come to the downtown public library on 615 Church Street to see Return to Oz. See this movie on the big screen Saturday, January 9th, 2016 at 2 p.m. Today's music is Return to Oz by David Shire.